welcome everybody here this morning to our continuing study of this New Testament letter to the church at Colossae. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to chapter 1. And like always, if I could get a few folks to help me with some study guides to those in the back. You'll just throw up a hand in the back if you don't have one. Somebody will get those to you. Before we go into our text, in light of everything that we just sung and celebrated to the Lord, let's pray. Let's ask God to own this time as we gather together around His Word. So let's go to God together in one voice. Let's pray. Father, we come to You, Lord. You are the high and exalted one. You are the one whom angels worship, even in this moment, as the holy, holy, holy one. The whole earth is full of your glory. And we tell you, Lord, as we sing those songs to you, God, and we ask those questions in our soul, who has given counsel to you, God, and we say, no one, Lord, you are the only wise God. You know all things. You are perfect in your sovereignty. And our desire is to worship you as your church. To declare the glory that is due your name. But God, we come with weakness. As we sing those words to you, who can declare all of your praise, Lord? Who can fathom all of your deeds? God, we are weak in our minds and we are weak in our praise. But Lord, we desire to worship you. So God, as we come to your word today, we ask you to exalt yourself in our life. You tell us in your word that no one can see your face and live. No one, Lord. You are blazing in holiness. But God, we desire to see every ounce of you that is possible for us to behold in this world. We want to see you, Lord. We want to be a people that know you, that worship you, that are consumed with passion for your holy name. And so we ask you to reveal yourself to us in power this morning, God, as we read your word, as we give attention to it, Lord, that you would make it effective. And that you would open our understanding, that you would cause light to come into dark and blind eyes. Lord, reveal yourself to us. We say, come Holy Spirit, Spirit that exalts Jesus. Come fill us this morning. Come use your word, Lord. Come use my stammering words to do your work this morning so that you get glory in all things. Come meet with us, Father, in heaven. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Now before we read this, I want to say something really quick. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. Many, many people, pastors, teachers, scholars, tell us that this paragraph that we're about to read together is the most dense description of the supremacy of Christ in all of Scripture. Okay? We have a lot 
in a very little bit of space in this paragraph. Today we're going to spend all of our time in the very middle of this paragraph in verse 17 and 18. But what we're going to do at the very beginning is we're going to read this whole thing. Okay? We're going to read 15 through 20 together. And you're reminded often, and I'll remind you again, by far, okay, this is the most important thing that you will hear me say in the next hour of time together. By far. These are words from God. Straight from His mouth. Hot breath from the Holy Spirit. They are God-breathed in the present tense. This is God's Word. Let's read it together. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of His cross. The word preeminence means to surpass all others. It's a word of supremacy. And that one word summarizes this entire paragraph. This is what the Holy Spirit is reminding us this morning about Jesus Christ. He is without rival. He is without comparison. He is the preeminent one in all of God's creation. He is supreme. Supreme. This is where we're headed today. Now, why do we need that reminder? You think about that. We gather together as the people of God, the people that love Jesus Christ. But you know this about yourself. Every one of us in this room, we are prone to forget who rules the world that we live in. Amen? This is not just a day-by-day battle. This is a moment-by-moment battle. On paper, we say, Jesus rules all things, supreme over all things. But the disposition of our hearts... We are engaged in a moment-by-moment battle to remember who rules this universe. Okay, I want you to think about all the things in our life that can be directly traced to us forgetting the supremacy of Christ. You think about that for a moment. Things like anxiety and fear and unbelief and coldness to Christ. And rebellion in our life. All of those things. You can run a thread back to that common denominator. That in all of those we are forgetting who Jesus is. We're forgetting who Jesus is. Every one of us in this room. We battle. We bump against these things on a daily basis. Therefore everybody in this room needs a reminder this morning. That Jesus Christ is the preeminent one in all of God's Creation. You can say it this way, that every one of us are in a battle to behold the glory of Christ. Not just to know facts about Jesus, but to be overwhelmed with His sufficiency, His majesty, and His sovereignty. We're in a lifelong battle to see Jesus rightly. And Colossians reminds us of this maybe more than any other book in Scripture. 
that we're deadlocked in this battle, okay? That we either see Jesus rightly and we behold his supremacy, or Colossians tells us that there are literally hundreds of other things that are ready at any moment to jump in and take his place, okay? This is the message of Colossians. This church was tempted in many ways to go after things other than the Lord Jesus. These things are called idols in Scripture. Distractions, idolatry. Every one of us are deadlocked in this battle. And what you've heard many times already as we studied this letter is the Apostle Paul, he knows this about this church. He knows the distractions that they face, the things that they are tempted to do to, to, to downplay the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've said this over and over again, that his number one strategy in this letter is not to single out 10 or 15 things that they're doing wrong and spend a lot of time on moving through each one of those. He goes to that common denominator of everyone. They're not holding fast to the head. They're walking away from the Lord Jesus Christ, the supreme in all of creation. So his number one strategy in this letter is to exalt Christ, to exalt the Lord Jesus, to show him as the supreme and the sovereign over all that God has made. He wants to show this church and we want to be a church that sees these things. That Jesus is better than anything that we would be tempted to put in his place. He's better than that. He's better than that. He's sovereign over that. He's supreme in every way. Or to use another word, Jesus is preeminent. He's better. He's sovereign. He's supreme. He is preeminent. So as we begin to unpack this today, the middle of this paragraph, I want you to think about, is this who you believe Jesus to be? We're about to get a description of Jesus according to Scripture. And the question from the very beginning that I want in your mind and on your heart, is this who you believe Jesus to be? Let's pick it up where Ryan left off last week in verse 17. And this is the description of Jesus Christ as the sovereign or the supreme in all of creation. Verse 17 says this. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Now that word, Jesus is before all. All things. This is a pedal to the metal, full throttle confession that Jesus is eternal. Okay, got it? So there's two categories here. All things and Jesus. Got it? Jesus is before all of those things. Everything that has been made, Jesus is before that. He is eternal. Not just pre-existent. He is eternal. Okay? This is what we see. In this passage, and anything less than that, any confession about who Jesus of Nazareth is, that stops short of He is the eternal Son of God, is not Christian. And not only that, it's not true. It's not Christian, and it's not true. He is the eternal one. So I want us to camp here before we go further this morning. This is who He is in relation to creation. He's before it. Okay. I want you to listen to this. C.S. Lewis struck a mighty blow, in my opinion, okay, against the, this postmodern mindset in his day 
that said silly things about who Jesus was. I want you to listen to what he says. What he, this is known uh, as the trilemma, is, is what people call this now. And what he did is he basically said there, there are three and only three categories at the end of the day uh, that you can put Jesus Christ into. Okay? He calls it the liar, the lunatic, or Lord. I want you to listen to what he says. He says, I quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Such as, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. So if you've never considered that, I want you to really sink your mind around this for a second. I've heard this just this week. Jesus is a great teacher, but he's not God. Okay? And C.S. Lewis said that is a really foolish thing that we would say about the Lord Jesus. Because anybody that said the sort of things that he said... Cannot be a merely great teacher. And I want you to think about this. What kinds of things are we talking about? That Jesus Christ taught and said the things that he said. Well, I just want to give you one of these. John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus is, is, is in an argument with his enemies. Okay? The Jews, uh, the leader of the Jews. And he looks at them and he says this phrase. John... 8 verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So these are the types of things that fly out of his mouth all through the Gospels. But let's zone in right there, okay? Jesus of Nazareth said this, before Abraham was, I am, I am. And what Jesus did there is he took this Old Testament personal name of God, name of Yahweh, called God said he was, I am who I am. I am. That was his name revealed to Moses in the early chapters of Exodus. And what Jesus does with that statement is he takes that statement and that name of the eternal God and he flips it and he says, that's me. Okay. He taught all through the Gospels. And let's just camp out here explicitly. He taught that he was God, the eternal God. Everybody in the room in John chapter 8 knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. Do you know why? The very next verse in John chapter 8 verse 59 says they tried to kill him. Look at, what, look at it. Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. They knew that he claimed to be God. They hated that he claimed to be God. And so this is an option that is simply not available to us that Jesus is a great moral teacher, but he's not God. Do you see that? Why can that not be true? Because he claimed to be God. So at the end of the day, you know, if older children, if you've never heard anything like this, I really want this to sit on you. He claimed to be God, therefore he either lied to us or he confessed the truth about himself. At the end of the day, that's the only two options that we have. Only two options that we have. And Christians, 
from the very beginning of the church have confessed that Jesus of Nazareth was the Lord of the universe, the creator of all things. That is an amazing thing. An absolutely amazing thing. You think about this. They saw him. We read about him. They saw him speak. They saw a real human body. They saw him articulate words and they heard his voice. They saw him eat food and walk down dirt roads in Israel. They saw a man and yet they claimed that man to be God at great personal cost to themselves. Dying martyr's death confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. From the very beginning, this has always been true. He's not just a supreme created being. He's not just a great moral teacher. He is God in the flesh. God in the flesh from the very beginning. Before all things. And what this means for us is that when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ according to Scripture, we're not talking about the History Channel Jesus, right? We are talking about the one before all things. That is in Genesis chapter 1, breathing out all that is. By His powerful Word. He is before all things. And verse 16 tells us that He made all things. So we talked about from the very beginning the church has believed this. Let's just give one example of that. One of Jesus' disciples, apostles, named Thomas. He's referred to, he gets a bad rap in some ways, he's referred to as Doubting Thomas. Okay? Imagine that being the adjective associated with your name for about uh, a couple thousand years. So, so, but that, but that's, what, that's what a lot of people call them. Okay? But let's take a peek in John chapter 20. Let's take a peek of what Thomas, of how Thomas responded to Jesus. The very moment that Thomas takes his hands and places it, those hands in the wounds of the resurrected Christ. Look at what it says in John chapter 20, verse 27. Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And then look what it says. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. If anybody ever tells you in scripture that the apostles never claimed that Jesus was God, they're wrong. This is an explicit claim to deity. From his own apostles. Now think about how staggering that is. That he is looking at a man. That he sees in a body. And he is claiming that you are a man. But you are God. You are God. You think about how amazing that is. When Thomas lived with Jesus. For several years. Think about that. Think about what you begin to know about a person by living with. Okay? Think about Alan, Daniel, and Robbie. Two brothers that love each other very much. But you know what? When you live with somebody, you begin to know things about somebody in a, a much deeper level. Not all bad. You begin to see their character and their Christ-likeness in a way that you, wouldn't, you would not have seen otherwise. That they love Jesus when nobody's looking. 
And you certainly get insights into good things about someone's character when you live with them, right? But that's not all you see. You also get a front row seat to somebody's sinful nature. That you are literally uh, a front row seat to, to their rebellious nature against God. That slip of the tongue, the fleshly thought roll across the mind. You see that? You understand this? That's, that's, that's what living with somebody means that you know them to a deeper level. And let's just say it. Let's just be really clear. Guess, guess one thing in all of God's creation that uh, Ravi has uh, no chance of convincing Alan Daniel of. Guess what it is? That he's God. Zero. No chance. Why? Because Alan says, I know you, brother. I know you ain't God. <laughs> you understand that? Okay? Thomas is walking around with Jesus Christ. He sees everything about the man. Everything about the man. And yet there is nothing in all of that personal history to pull from that comes against this claim. It is a full-throated claim. You are God. You are my God. Jesus Christ is before all things. The Bible proclaims that He is the Eternal One. The Eternal One. I want you to listen to this ancient Christian doctrinal statement. This is called the Nicene Creed from the 3rd century. So from the very beginning, always been this way. We have always believed these things. Jesus is God. Listen to what it says. Describes Jesus Christ as, as follows. Open quote. The only begotten Son of God. Begotten of His Father before all worlds. God of God. Light of light. Very God of very God. Begotten not made. Being of one substance with the Father. By whom all things were made. By whom all things were made. Jesus is God and Jesus created all things. Created all things. That's not just a fact to bubble in on a piece of paper. He deserves praise for who He is. And worship and adoration for His supremacy. He's before all things. And not only that, our passage tells us that He is holding all things together. He's before all things. This is what He's doing at the very beginning. Okay? Creator before all things. But not only that, at this present moment, in this millisecond, He is upholding all things. Upholding all things. And what verse 17 is, is proclaiming about Jesus is He's not only the Creator, the eternal Creator, He is the sustainer of all of God's creation. All of God's creation. The sustainer of the universe. Some people believe that a deity created the world and then took his hands off. And now the world is governed by impersonal laws. That's called deism. Okay? Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 is coming directly against that. Jesus didn't make all things in Genesis 1 and take his hands off. He is a present ruling sovereign in this creation. And so think about this. Everything is being held together. Not by all these laws of nature and laws of science, such as this. Hypo, hydrodynamics. Tongue tied from the very beginning. 
electromagnetics, quantum physics, laws of motion, laws of gravity, laws of radiation, all kinds of laws and laws and laws of nature. Colossians 1 is telling us the universe is not being held together by those laws. There's somebody standing behind every one of those and his name is Jesus. You see that? He's holding all things together as the sustainer of the universe. He is the power of cohesion in the created order. Think about it like this. He's the glue that's holding everything in creation together. Why is the world and the universe that we live in, why is it not disintegrating into chaos? Because Christ is upholding all things. He is sustaining all things. You have all this energy, all these nuances of complexity in God's creation. And why is it not imploding on itself? Because Christ is holding it all together. Holding every molecule in His creation in perfect union. Just as you would have it to be. Think about that. Think about the scope that we're talking about here. From the macro to the micro. We're talking planets all the way down to atoms and cells in your body. Okay? And what Colossians 1 is telling us is there's, there's not... You think about the smallest thing that you can wrap your mind around. Electrons. And if you know something smaller than that, just tell me after. Okay? What, we, what we're seeing here is... The, it, it, what, what we're seeing about the sovereignty of Christ is there's not one of those single electrons in all of the universe that is in rebellion to Him. And He deserves praise and worship for His supremacy. You ever worship Jesus for that? That electrons in all the universe bow the knee to Him as King. He's the sovereign over all that He's made. He's upholding the universe, upholding all things. Now let's think about that for a second. We're talking about the complexities of the universe. Okay, We're not talking about Jesus holding things together in, in your life, in your personal life, even though that is certainly true. Okay, In your physical body, in your personal life, we're talking about the universe. Okay, So let's wrap our mind around this for a minute. We live in a solar system, us, eight other planets, and the sun. Okay? And if you were to go from one side of that to the other, you would make a 7.5 billion mile journey. Okay? And he upholds it all. He's flinging planets and they're spinning around in, in, in perfect order. He's upholding all of that in our solar system. And then jump a step further. Okay? Our solar system is part of what's known as the Milky Way Galaxy. And besides our sun, there's a guesstimated 200 billion other stars in our galaxy. And every one of them burns because Jesus says burn. Every one of them is held up because Jesus is holding them up. He's upholding all things. All things. And just one more jump. So we have this massive solar system in the middle of this massive galaxy. And the best guesses that we have from astronomers is that there's 50 billion other galaxies besides the Milky Way galaxy. And Colossians chapter 1 is telling us that Jesus upholds every single one of them. We're talking about a scope and a scale that makes our brain hurt. It's so massive. 
And He's doing it all at the same time. Upholding all things. Upholding all things. I was blown away by this. Just this thought of not only did Jesus fling the earth and it orbits the sun just in perfect rhythm. Okay? And we say He upholds all things. It's not just brute strength and power. It's precision. We're talking about surgical precision. And so you have this massive ball flying thousands of miles an hour around the sun. And Jesus did that. Jesus did that. If I got any, you know, baseball fans or softball fans in the room, you imagine that. You imagine if you had the power to take something in your hand and hurl it hard enough that it begins to orbit the planet. He did that with planet Earth and billions of other planets that are revolving around the sun. But listen to this. this. This blows my mind. He did it with such precision that when he, when he let it go, you just imagine tipping your finger just the right amount. That not only is it flying through space at thousands of miles an hour, it's got this perfect rhythm. As it hurls through space 24 hours, it does a rotation around the sun to just keep things exactly perfect temperature. Like a, like a massive rotisserie flying around the sun. You see that? He did that. He's done that. He's doing that. Even now, with power and precision. Precision. You have this figure in Greek mythology. It's called Atlas. And he shows up in statues and pictures. You've got this, you know, uh, bulky um, man with this, with this globe sitting on his shoulder. And if you've ever seen that, I've always noticed that that globe doesn't look light on that man's back. Like he's not sitting there with the world on his back smiling, you know, like this is so easy. In fact, if you really look at it, it looks like it's about to crush him in the ground. It looks like it's about to bury him in the dirt that he's standing on. And that's the picture that there is this, the, the Atlas has the weight of, his, of the world on his shoulders. I want you to think about that being a mini, little, little, little bitty picture of what Jesus Christ is doing with the universe. That man has a picture of planet Earth on his shoulders and it's about to bury him. But this passage tells us that Jesus is holding up all of the universe. Billions of galaxies are being held up by Jesus. And it's not even hard for him. Like, Atlas is about to break his legs trying to... To hold up the globe. But Jesus isn't even exerting himself. Listen to this. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus does this work of sustaining creation without lifting his pinky finger. It is not even difficult for him. Listen. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us this. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He does it with his mouth. He doesn't even lift his finger. This is how sovereign, this is how supreme, this is how powerful this Christ is. Blazing suns and planets in orbit and cells in your body. And he's doing it without lifting a finger by his powerful word. This is who Christ is. But let's move into even more personal. Like he's sustaining planets and solar systems and galaxies. But being real personal, He's sustaining you. He is the sustainer of all of His creation, including 
you. And what this means for each one of us is that the moment He stops sustaining you personally, you cease to live in His universe. Listen to Psalm chapter Psalm 104, verse 29. It says this, When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. That's how dependent on Jesus Christ you are as His creature being sustained by His sovereign power. The millisecond He ceases to sustain you. You cease to live in His universe. And so I want us to pause right there and I want us to consider. In light of this, before even moving forward, in light of what we see here, how indebted are you to Jesus Christ? Your Creator and your Sustainer. What do you owe to Him? What kind of authority, what kind of rights does He have over your life? And this is to every person in the room without exception. The one who made you owns you. He owns you. You are His. He has creator rights over you. And not only does He own you, He's sustaining you, which means that He is completely sovereign over when you die. You don't decide anything. He decides all things. You are completely under His authority. And there is no end, no limit to His rights and His authority in your life as His creature. And this is a reminder to us. Every single creature that is alive in the creation that belongs to Jesus Christ is accountable to Jesus Christ. Every single one of us you think about this. So, so, so what we have here is that rebellious part of us that rises up in rebellion against King Jesus. We can rightly respond to that, that that is right. As long as you are able to create your own universe to live in. You understand that? But every person that's alive in this universe that belongs to Jesus Christ is accountable to King Jesus, the sovereign over all things. It's a law in the universe, in the universe that you live in, that the creature must obey the Creator. Okay? It is impossible for you to live in rebellion to Jesus in this created world without being held accountable to King Jesus for what you have done. And that, that transitions us into exactly... What is wrong with this creation? Things are not like God intended them to be in Genesis chapter 1. We know in, in very soon after, in Genesis chapter 3, human sin has entered into this world through one man. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And guess what? Everybody after him repeated that sad, sad movie on repeat over and over and over again. Death spread to all men because all have sinned. This is what's wrong with the universe and the world that you live in. It's us. It is us. It's human sin and rebellion. And so I want us to come full circle uh, of what we have in front of us. You think about this. Christ as a sovereign and the king over all things. Okay? We're talking about electrons bowing the knee to Jesus. Planets and galaxies. You think about how they respond to His sovereign word. I'll give you some examples. Jesus says to the Son, 
burn at 10,000 degrees, not cooler, not hotter, and don't stop till I tell you to stop. And the son obeys him as the king and as the Lord. Jesus tells planets to, to revolve around suns and they obey him. Jesus tells water to fall on the earth and the water obeys him. Jesus tells birds to migrate across the earth and they obey him. Jesus tells fish to swim around in the water and they obey him. And the crown of his creation, mankind, Jesus says, You shall have no other gods before me and we disobey him. We are completely unique in all of creation. We are the rebels in God's universe. Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. And we say, no, we rebel against King Jesus. This is human sin. Human sin. And every single one of us are guilty. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. When we say things like every single one of us are guilty, too often... That brings an inappropriate comfort in our life because we're all in the same boat. We feel better about ourselves. There's nothing light about human sin that has defiled God's universe. Nothing light about it. Look at Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2. It says this, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up but they have rebelled against me. God is talking to the heavens and the earth. He's talking to the creation. And it's like he's saying this. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? The crown of creation has rebelled against me. It's an astounding thing in all of the universe. That we have rebelled against God. And yet every single one of us are guilty hundreds of times over there's nothing light about our offenses and our rebellions to King Jesus. you got to remember who we sinned against. We sinned against the one who is before all things, the eternal one. We sinned against the one who ups, upholds all things, the sustainer of the universe. So we didn't sin against some little g, little bitty power God. We sinned against Christ, the sovereign king over all. And the scriptures are very clear. Because we have done that many times over, we are under that king's curse. That king has cursed us. He has cursed humanity. He's cursed all of humanity because of our sin. We are under his judgment. Do you know that? Hebrews chapter 9 it is appointed that we die once and after that comes the judgment. And he is completely sovereign over when that happens. He can make your heart stop beating right now before I finish this sentence. This is who you are accountable to. This is who every one of us have sinned against. This is the rebellion that affects the entire universe. And I want you to think about this. As the sustainer of all of his creatures, he can end us at any moment and pull us into the final judgment at any moment. But what we see in the midst of this sovereign power and this supremacy over all things is we get a glimpse into the nature of Jesus Christ. And what, what do we see? 
side by side with His sovereignty as we see Him extending grace toward His rebellious creatures. And I want to make this as personal as I can. This idea that Jesus upholds all things. I want you to think about that being true in regards to human sin. You think about the crucifixion. We don't know the man's name that took the nails and the hammer and drove it through the body of the Son of God. We don't know his name, but he had a name. He's a real man. That was a real moment. And Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus gave that man a heartbeat while he was killing him. He was being sustained by Jesus Christ. His heartbeat was being sustained. His consciousness was being sustained by the one he was killing. You see this? So even as we come into this idea that he's sustaining all things, we see his grace. Because listen, it doesn't have to be that distant for you. Because several hundred thousand times over, you have rebelled against God. And you know what's true of you? He sustained you through. God gave you a heartbeat after you sinned against Him. In Jesus, you live and move and have your being. Why is that true? Why is that true? Why did not God strike us dead in the middle of our rebellion? And not just one time, hundreds of times over. Why has He upheld us? Why is He sustaining us even as we rebel against Him? What we see is that something else is at play here besides creation and Jesus' role in creation. We see that His heart is set on redeeming sinners. He sustains sinners in order to redeem sinners. And that's exactly how this passage flows for us this morning. There's a pivot in the middle of this paragraph that is a massive shift between verse 17 and verse 18. Okay? Up to this point, everything that we have been talking about is the creation. After this point, everything that we're going to be talking about is the new creation. Not God's work of creation, but His work of redemption. And His seeking out and saving sinners. This is the pivot. This is the pivot for us. God knows what's gone wrong in His creation. He alone can fix what has gone wrong in His creation. And He's taken the initiative to do that. To do that. So here's the trans transition. The preeminent one in creation has become the preeminent one in new creation. Listen to verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Not only the Lord of the universe, the head of the church. So notice where we are. We're not talking about planets and atoms and solar systems and created beings and angels. We're not talking about that anymore. We have gotten tunnel vision. In all of God's creation, it has been zoned in to redeem humanity, the church of Jesus Christ. This is a drastic shift. You think about this. Out of that rebellious humanity, there has emerged a new humanity. Out of the rebellious old creation... There has emerged a new creation called the church. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is what we see here. 
there is a remnant that has emerged out of lost, rebellious humanity that is no longer characterized by rebellion to the Lord of the universe. They are characterized and put in relationship to the head and the authority of the church, Jesus Christ. This is us. The ones who have been redeemed by His blood. I won't say much here, but I'll say this, that Jesus is the head of the church. His headship is not an empty title like the Queen of England. That What does she really do other than be the Queen of England? It's not like that. Okay, Jesus really rules over His people. Backside of that is just as true. His people really submit to Him as their King. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So this is the transition. The king of the universe has brought a remnant of humanity back under his authority. Back under his authority. And I'll just say this. Jesus, as the head of the church, is a reminder to us as a local church. Okay? We gather together every week, and certainly this word in, in this verse is, is talking about all the people of God. But I'll just apply it to us. We gather together every week, and this church has an authority. It's not me, and it's not God. The ultimate authority in this church is Jesus. And what that means for us is we're not free to do whatever we want when we gather together in meetings like this, smaller meetings, and scattered across this city. We're not free to do church however we want or whatever seems best to us. We are under authority. Under authority. Church is not about human preference. Church is about being ruled by King Jesus through His Word. Through His Word. The church has a head and He is to be submitted to. Submitted to. So here's what we see here. That all of humanity was in rebellion to the king of the universe. But Christ took the initiative. And has redeemed a remnant to himself. And restored order in that new creation. That now we are no longer characterized. We're not perfect. But we're not characterized by rebellion to the king anymore. We have a head. We are under his authority. That's the church. That's the church. And not only that. Jesus is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. The beginning, the firstborn from the dead. I take those two words together because I think they refer to the same thing. I think there are two sides of the same coin. The beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So in context, I think that Jesus is being proclaimed the beginning of the new creation. The beginning of the age that is marked by resurrection from the dead. For that reason, he is known as the firstborn from the dead. Beginning the firstborn from the dead. Is it right to speak of Jesus Christ? Is it legitimate to speak of him as the firstborn from the dead? We know other people were raised from the dead before Jesus, such as Lazarus. Okay? But 
But Lazarus was not raised in the way that Jesus was raised. Agreed? Why? How do we know that? Where is Lazarus right now? He's in the tomb. He is awaiting final resurrection. He was raised from the dead to die again. To die again. Jesus' resurrection is nothing like that. Nothing like that. Listen to Romans chapter 6 verse 4. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. Raised forever. That means when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, He ripped the gates off of death and Hades never to return to that place. He conquered death forever. Never to die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. He's the firstborn from the dead. He is the only one to ever be raised like that. Firstborn from the dead. Listen to how he describes himself in Revelation chapter 1 verse 18. Jesus says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. He wants us to know that. That when he came out of the tomb, he's never coming back. And he brought the keys with him. He plundered death and Hades. So he was raised in a final and forever way, not like Lazarus was raised, to die again. And what that means, as we're talking this morning, back and forth, is that Jesus Christ is really alive in a real glorified human body sitting on the throne of heaven. It's not mystical. It's not spiritual only. It's a physical glorified human body. He is King Jesus. Firstborn from the dead. Firstborn from the dead. And that word firstborn tells us something else. It tells us that there's some people that are going to follow him. Firstborn from the dead. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 calls Jesus the firstborn among many brothers. That means that there's going to be some other resurrections following that first glorious conquering resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 spells this out. Listen to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. And so I want you to see Jesus' resurrection like that. He's a pioneer. He's pioneering the way. He's, he's the very beginning. And He's pioneering the way for our resurrection. His resurrection secures something for us. He's the first fruits. There's going to be other fruits that follow Him. So He secures something for us when He's raised from the dead. But our text says that He, acure, he secures something for Himself. Also, look at the end of verse 18. The resurrection of Christ is said to accomplish a real goal in real human history. Space-time history. Not weird, mystical. Real space-time history. Here's the goal. Verse 18. That in everything He might be preeminent. That word that means so that. Jesus was raised from the dead so that this would happen. And it literally is worded like this. That he might become preeminent in everything. 
I want you to scratch your brain on this for a minute. Jesus was raised from the dead to become preeminent. And the question that ought to be right there is, how in the world can we say that? How in the world can we say that Jesus became preeminent when we know that He was preeminent from all eternity? And that's exactly what the text is affirming for us. That the preeminent one from the very beginning became preeminent through His resurrection in real human history. So I want to take a minute. I want us to just sit here. I want us to glory in this. Okay? This is what our text is affirming for us about Jesus. He was preeminent in eternity as God the eternal Son. But He became preeminent in real human history as the God-man Christ Jesus. And our text tells us that the very millisecond that happened was the resurrection. His resurrection from the dead. Listen to Romans chapter 1 verse 4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Same question with other titles, right? How can the Son of God from all eternity ever be said to be declared the Son of God at His resurrection. We see this paradigm that Jesus has passed through these glorious stages of exaltation and supremacy. Romans chapter 14 verse 9, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. So, let's turn full circle here. At the resurrection of Jesus, real glorified humanity, a real glorified man conquered death and he ripped the gates off of death and hell. Somebody from our line, from our stock, minus sin, conquered death. And in that moment, he was declared to be, as the God-man, the king over everything. Preeminent in all things. No one like Him. No one stands beside Him. No rivals to Him. He is Christ above all. Christ above all. And the resurrection is His title to the throne of the universe as the exalted God man. So in His, in his incarnation, the eternal Son takes on humanity like the form of a servant. But in His resurrection, the eternal Son takes on glorified humanity and is given the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. In all of God's creation, He is the exalted God-man on His throne. And so we could say it like this. God the Son, through whom the world was made, has become the God-man through whom the world is ruled. His name is Jesus, preeminent above all. Supreme above all. In, in a local church, just like us, is being reminded of this because we are prone to forget it. So you think about this. As we behold the glory of Jesus Christ 
exalted above all things in every way. The only proper response to that is to line up with the rest of the universe. And by that I mean if he's preeminent in all things, brothers and sisters, he has to be first preeminent in your life. And that's exactly the thrust of our text. The Lord of the universe must be Lord over every single aspect of your life. In response to who Jesus is and what He's done, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, commands us to offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Think of what's, what's in view there, that you give it all to Him. Like a blank check, you present it to King Jesus and you say, do whatever you will with my life. You fill out this check in any way that you desire because you are Lord. And I am your creation. I belong to you. Romans chapter 2 verse 12. That same verse calls, calls our presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. It calls it our logical response. That's the only thing logical for us. That's what the Greek word there means. It is reasonable. It is rational. It is the only thing logical in light of who Jesus is. That we present ourselves to Him with no strings attached. That He is the preeminent in every way in our life. And I want to remind us of this. He owns us. Twice over, He owns you. He created you and He bought you by His blood. You are His. You belong to Him. You are His. He has the authority to do whatever He wishes in your life twice over. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says this. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you know that? Jesus died that you would live for Him. And what that means for you today is He must be first in your life, in everything, in everything. In your marriage, your marriage is about serving Jesus. It's not about personal interest. You being a parent is about you serving Jesus. It's not about you having a nice life in this world. Your career is not a way for you to get worldly accolades. It's a way for you to serve the King of the universe. Everything, first place. He demands the, the place of preeminence and the throne of your life with no strings attached. And your possessions, He must be first. And your affections, He must be first. Seek His kingdom first and His righteousness. Think about that. He's the King of the universe. Therefore, He demands the place of supremacy in your life. And anything that you would dare put in His place cannot even compare to Him. Anything that you would even dream of living for beside Him can't even compare to Him. Cannot even compare to Him. He refuses to anybody in this room. He refuses to be treated like a vitamin supplement that you pop a little pill and it makes you more healthy and it enhances all of the areas of your life. Jesus is not like that. 
Jesus is not an accessory to be added to your life. He's a king that came to reign over you. To have preeminence in your life. To rule you in all things. The Lord of the universe. He demands absolute allegiance as the king of glory. What this means for every one of us as we close is I know this about myself and I know this about you. That you know, even as I speak, you know there are places in your life that are outside of His authority. You know that there are places in your life that you're in sin, that you're in rebellion to King Jesus. That you are living for self instead of living to serve Christ. And I just want to leave you with this statement as we close. Directly addressing those rebellious areas in our life. And here's the statement. This was once said to a famous evangelist. A man said to him, The world has yet to see what God can do with a man or a woman that is fully consecrated to Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that. And I want us to believe that. In all those rebellious places in our life, and here's how I want us to respond. This is D.L. Moody's response. His famous response to that statement. As he hears that said, and he says this, By the grace of God, I will be that man. Nothing prideful about that. Doesn't have to be prideful. Doesn't have to be an arrogant boast in fleshly strength. It is the proper response, the rational response, that we as the people of God respond to the King of the universe and we say, reign over me, King Jesus, in every area of my life. Reign over me, Lord. Conquer all these rebellious places in my life and be the preeminent Lord. Take the throne. Take the highest place. This is our, this is our disposition as we walk away from this text. Every single one of us, Grace Community Church, I'm praying that God would increase our zeal to be by Christ. Be ruled by Him. Now here's your summary. The main point of our text today is that Jesus is preeminent in everything. And the main aim of our text today is that Jesus would be preeminent in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Christ. We thank You, Lord, for His majesty and for revealing His power and His grace to us. Lord, and we do ask, God, that you would visit your word today and make it effective in your church. Lord Jesus, we want to obey you. You are the head of this church. We hate it when we sin against you, Lord, and we do it many times over. And we ask you to help us increase our zeal to be ruled by you and get our attention with your sovereignty, we pray. Don't let us linger long in, in, in our rebellions, Lord. Get our attention, we pray. In Jesus' name.